Previously on American Thought Leaders. He can't win according to his original initiative, but he can win according to his fallback position the way he did in, in Syria and Grozny. In part one of my interview with classicist and military historian Victor Davis Hansen, author of The Dying Citizen, we discussed Vladimir Putin's goals, Beijing's position on the war, and why the left and corporate media seem to all be advancing identical narratives. Now in part two, we dig deeper into what's really going on, from biolabs to ultra-right-wing battalions to talk of a new world order. There's going to be a new world order out there. Is a very transparent attempt to leverage an existential crisis into a political agenda. And while everyone is talking about a no-fly zone, Many haven't noticed that Turkey, a NATO member, has imposed what's essentially a no-float zone, blocking Russian warship access to the Black Sea. Is this a World War III moment? We have to have leaders who say, you know what, we don't have to be perfect to be good, and we just need to be better than all the alternatives. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. So there's no no-fly zone, but NATO does have, I mean, Turkey has a no uh, float zone, I suppose, yes. to set up because it's blocking the Turkish Straits from Russian warships, for example. Yes. Now, what do you make of that? Isn't that, couldn't that be considered by the Russians an act of war? Turkey is a very strange country in that regard. There's 30 members of NATO. It's the largest by population, 85 million, and it's the largest in terms of manpower. It's also, uh, more anti-American than Germany. That's saying a lot. So if you ask polls of the Turkish citizenry, do you have a favorable view of America? About 65% say no. So what in Erdogan is, has been very anti-Israeli and anti-American. And he's said some crazy things about American, old American nukes and, and bases outside of Izmir that maybe these, these are kind of quasi-Turkish. They've been there so long, they're kind of our nukes. And we're even afraid to take them out in broad daylight. I think there had been a program to sort, you know, one or two a month to get them out of there. So we have a very checkered history. But if, when you go to, you know, Istanbul and you see the Bosphorus, it's right there. And what he's saying to us is, first of all, we act independently. So we've decided to give very effective drones to Ukraine. More than you guys did. We were there before you, and they're very effective. And we can govern who can go into the Black Sea. Maybe Russia for a while can't go. So in terms of what we're actually doing for NATO, we're doing more than you are. But don't tell us that we have to cut off the Russians or we can't. And then they're going and telling the Russians that let's negotiate access into the Black Sea. Let's negotiate how many drones we give. Uh, per month to maybe we should give a few less to help you guys out. So that's what they're doing. And it's sort of like what Germany was doing before the war started. Germany was saying to us, we love NATO. Thank you so much. But our polls show that about 55% of Germans would rather have closer relations with Putin than with Biden or Trump or Obama. And we also would like to have, you know, half of our energy needs met on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that's why we told Joe Biden, you know, you better not sanction that. And Joe said, OK, I'm sorry, we won't. And uh, they like Putin. They like the, the commerce and they like paying the, not paying the 2 percent. What we forget about not paying the 2 percent military obligation in NATO is that Germany just didn't 
fail to do that, they went around to other countries and said, we're not going to pay, we don't want you either to do it. So it undermined NATO. It really did. And so, again, be careful what you wish for. You know, Biden is today in NATO, and they are yucking it up about how wonderful it is. But, you know, they, you remember those conversations with Trudeau and Boris Johnson? They made fun of Trump at the NATO summit, and he... They kind of kept him out of the limelight. They had, I think, the miner in Montenegro or somebody was there in the limelight, and he had to push everybody out to get, you know, I'm the United States. I pay 30 of the budget. I, I should be out in the picture. So they wouldn't even let him be at the forefront of the group picture. And yet he was the one that forced them to spend $100 million on their budget. He upped our military budget, and he did more for NATO than, than Obama and Biden combined, and yet they hated him, and they loved Biden and they loved, by, um, they loved Obama, and both of them have been very deleterious to NATO. When they say, well, well we're bringing back NATO solidarity and unity, I'm thinking, mm, okay, that's why he went into Georgia, that's why he went into Crimea, that's why he went into eastern Ukraine, that's why he's gone into central Ukraine. So that's where he, Turkey, it's a long explanation about what Turkey's freelancing, Germany's freelancing. You know, these are incredible times right now. I think all of our listeners are so confused and baffled. They think, they, they wake up and they see Ukraine and they can't make any sense of it. They think, okay, we need oil, so we're sanctioning Russia, but we're asking the Russians to negotiate the Iran deal for us. Okay, but we're not letting the North Dakotans or the Texans or the Alaskans pump another two or three million barrels, and there are brethren United States citizens that were in a depression almost or high in stagflation, and they could really help us out. But we're going to beg Vladimir Putin, we're going to beg the Saudis, we're going to beg the Iranians, we're going to beg the Venezuelans to pump more they can't figure it out. It's insane. And the same thing about NATO. Okay, we're all on the same page with NATO and we don't want to make fun of our NATO, but they're not going to pay the 2% that we do and we're going to keep doing this. And so it doesn't make any sense. The only common denominator I can think of is weakness, you know, or, or ideology maybe, green ideology, zealotry, how could you explain that Joe Biden's administration came in and the first thing they did was say to the Germans, we agree, you need Russian oil and gas, go ahead with Nordstrom too. We, we're going to drop the Trump sanctions. Oh, and by the way, Cyprus, Greece, and Israel that are allies of the United States and friends who are just formulating this brilliant idea to tap Mediterranean and Aegean natural gas and oil and pipe it right into northern Italy, right into the belly of Europe. Don't do that. It's not, it's not tolerable according to climate change protocol. So we, we vetoed a way of supplying Europe with fossil fuels from allies and we opened up or encouraged uh, another pipeline from enemies. And that was the Biden administration did that. And, I, and so all of these things are so bizarre that the American people are confused. Putin's 
propaganda has been we are denazifying Ukraine, right? <laughs> yes. And then there are these Azov battalions that are somehow, you know, actually far right, right? And or or why don't you tell me how you understand that? Well, I mean, if you talk to guys in their 80s or 90s, I wrote a book on World War II, and I would try to do that when I could. And you would read a lot about, say, D-Day. One of the weirdest things about D-Day was that when they arrested um, or they captured the D-Day defender, they spoke Ukrainian, and they were not bilingual. So what Hitler had done with the half a million Ukrainians who felt they were liberated by the Nazis and didn't really worry about the fate of the Jews too much, and they wanted, and you can see why they did, because of the great famines and what Stalin had done to them, murdered maybe 10 up and more um, in the 20s by the collectivization and, and the war in the Kulaks. Nevertheless, they shipped them. They didn't want them fighting on the Eastern Front because of loyalties or they couldn't be. So they sent them as peacekeepers. I shouldn't say peacekeepers, as garrisons along the Atlantic coast. And Amer that's where Americans ended up being shot by them. And so there's a there's a tortuous history in Ukraine that's very hard to to just reduce to simple, they were the best people in the world in World War II and our allies and they helped everybody. No, that's not true at all. And yet on their point of view, they had certain reasons like the Finns did to fight against Stalin given what Stalin had done to them. The other day, I'll give you one other example of what the bizarre things that happened. So Zelensky being the rock star and the representation of Western consumer capitalist democracy suspended all the opposition right in the middle of the war. He just said, you, 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 you have no access to my media now. I'm the only media and your political party is going to be in suspended animation. <laughs> And I'm thinking, okay, but you're not in a world war. FDR held a 1944 election. Winston Churchill, once the European theater was over with, held elections and he was defeated by Clement Attlee right when he was attacking and being attacked in Singapore with the whole Pacific front still furious in the last five months. Uh, four months of the Pacific were the most deadly in the history of that theater, and yet he didn't suspend elections. He not only held them, he was voted out of office. And so why, if he's really this constitutional bulwark, why did he do that? And so, again, what I just said would be considered pro-Putin. And it's not. It's just that I wish that people would get a little bit more sophisticated and complex that War is never 100% good, 100% bad. It's murky. It's people have 54% of right, the other people have 46. And if you're over 51%, that's usually good enough to support one side. I think Ukraine uh, more or less has the moral edge, both historically and the present, but I'm not stupid enough to think I'm going to get on the Ukrainian gaga wagon and just say, oh my gosh, look at him. He's, and people have said this, he's a, a Christ-like figure. He's not. He's a, a realist politician that wants his nation to survive. He's willing to do anything he can to, to do it. And sometimes that means lie about histories, get rid of the opposition. But don't tell me that Ukraine is a, is a transparent democratic society. And but that doesn't mean that we don't support it. That's what's so funny about the left, you know. Um, 
we can't support the Contras, we can't support the Taiwanese, we can't support all of these other people because they're not quite liberal enough or they're not quite woke enough or constitutional, but we can support people on the left that are perceived to be on the left. Uh, they don't need to meet the same standards. I still wanted to touch a little bit on specifically this as a these as of battalions in the Ukraine, you know, I've had a guest on the show who's very concerned about, you know, the West effectively supporting potentially extremist enemies. He's a, he's a, he's a counter extremist activist. Um, and at the same time, there's another one of these, let's call it, to use your word, mystical uh, uh, topics, which is the biolabs. You know, there's, of course, there are biolabs. The U.S. has commented on the biolabs. They've been involved and they're being used, of course, as propaganda. Yeah. as well. So on both of these topics, what, are, what is your understanding? Well, I'm worried about these issues too. Um, I think one way to, to look at it is when you're actually in war, the spectrum of tolerance widens. So if you're Zelensky and you say we have some ultra-nationalist, right-wing, hyper-patriotic or irredentist Ukrainian and they don't have a good record in the past or the present or the future probably, but they're willing to fight Russians, we'll let them, in the way that we said, say in World War II, if your Churchill said, I'd go to hell and get the devil to help me if it would stop the Germans. And that's how he explained asking the Soviets. And current research has shown, out, shown recently that the Soviets were much worse than we thought as far as their double dealing and the manipulation of the fronts and the ingratitude they showed for us. But nevertheless, they killed two out of every three Wehrmacht soldiers. So I think what to look for is what is the price that Zelensky paid uh, these ultra-right-wing battalions to fight, if any. We won't really know until it's over with. But during the actual heat of battle, I think you're getting all sorts of people flocking into Ukraine, and I have a feeling that a lot of them are mercenaries, and doesn't mean that Putin is right when he said they're hired thugs and all of that, because they're doing the same thing. They're bringing in Syrians, supposedly, and Chechnyans, and that's what happens. It's sort of like the Spanish Civil War, where we all thought that Abraham Lincoln were idealists. No, a lot of these people were hardcore Trotskyites, and the Communist Party was running the show on the Loyalist faction, and Mussolini and Hitler were kind of Franco's uh, puppeteers. That's what happens when the world looks at a dividing line as a referendum on respective values and hopes and so there's some pretty odious figures coming into this war but it'll be, it'll depend on what Zelensky I mean he's he, he he's posing as this Churchillian leader but part of the Churchill baggage if he looks at it, I shouldn't say baggage but it's going to be baggage for him because he doesn't seem to be a, a champion of civil liberties but if he wants to play Churchill and galvanize the world with idealism, then you don't outlaw political parties. And you may have to clamp down on some of these ultra-right groups that helped you after the war is over. As far as the biolabs, I have a very quirky explanation of that. I didn't know that with the breakup of the Ukraine, Soviet military-affiliated uh, biological labs that were pretty much the center of the program were located in Ukraine. And I didn't know 
I don't think, I'm, I, I think I speak for the American people. I didn't know that the United States had a plan to decommission these, but when it was brought up on news that the de decommissioning seems to be taking a long time, I got a little worried. Why didn't you just decommission it in the way that after World War II, when we looked at uh, German rocketry and, and we looked at German Zygon B and all of this stuff, we just didn't stop it, but we took it over to the United States and incorporated Werner von Braun's team. You know, I mean, this is a guy who had blood on his hands with the V-2 rockets killing innocent British civilians. And Zygon B was an organophosphate. It was kind of the precursor of the American pesticide industry. So I had that in mind. I thought, well, when Victoria Newland was called before, and she was our Ukrainian point woman, she's very articulate, very bright, married to Robert Kagan. I thought she'll just explain it, and that'll be it. She'll just say, you know what? We had a program just like we disassembled the nuclear weapons of uh, Ukraine and sent the material back to Russia. We had a partnership, a quartet. It worked well, and we did the same thing. It took a little bit longer, and we've got a little bit of residual. But she didn't. She looked like a deer in the headlight. She just, ah, uh, well, okay. And she didn't, she wasn't an effective witness. So that performance or lack of it was analogous to Robert Mueller defending the Mueller investigation, if you remember that. It, but she's not in his state, but there was for a moment she was. And that created all of this controversy. So I don't know what to make of it other than uh, my only concern, I think most people, is if there are vira there that are being gain of function or enhanced for vaccination purposes or for bio, whatever purpose, are they secure if, if a Russian missile hits them? And I'm not, I think that's the real worry that Putin knows where they are because the Russians built them. And if he takes a missile and tries to hit one of them and blow them up, then all he has to say is, well, why were they active? According to the agreement, they should have finished their work a long time ago. I didn't know it. I just hit something by accident. And, and then we don't know whether that would release. We don't have the information whether they're viable uh, specimens or what they were doing. So I think we need some explanations about it. But that, that's what I'm worried about. We haven't got a transparency yet. But I haven't bought into the... Uh, we were in league with the Ukrainians creating biological weapons and maybe as a deterrent against Russian nukes or whatever the conspiracy is. But there's, if it was as simple as Newland said, then she would have been much more confident in her answers. You know, something that just strikes me as we're talking here today, um, you know, the, I think actually President Biden said this himself, that our the, the world order is being challenged or, you know, something of this. <laughs> New world order. Well, oh, yeah, I mean. George H.W. Bush. <laughs> well, okay. Okay, well, tell me what you're thinking right now, and, uh, and then I'll continue. <laughs> I thought whoever gave him that phrase should have his head examined because New World Order uh, brings back the Bushes going into the first Gulf War it brings back globalism, it's the Davos reset, and more specifically is a very transparent attempt to leverage an existential crisis into a political agenda, just in the way COVID was. And remember that Klaus Schwab at Davos said, 
this is a chance to have a great reset, great reset. He wrote a book called The Great Reset and COVID, meaning we can force corporations worldwide to have a uniform corporate structure. We can make them divest from green energy. We can choose the diverse members of the board on an international scale that supersedes sovereignty. And then that was forwarded by should say, echoed by Gavin Newsom here, said COVID allows us to be more progressively capitalist, a capitalism in a new progressive. And Hillary said, well, I don't know, maybe COVID will help us get universal health care. So it was that way, in the same way that Rahm Emanuel, after the 2008 meltdown, said never let a crisis, a great crisis, go to waste. And so when he said new world order right in the middle of a Ukrainian crisis, you thought, well, what is your new world order? It's what, an international consortium are going to do what? Stop the Ukrainian war, stop the Iranian nuclear proliferation? And who are they that are going to do this? Well, there's only four or five people in the world that have the power to force less power for people to go along. That's us and China, maybe Russia, German and Japan economic power, but who is it? because people are not just going to raise their hands. And then the next thing I thought was, well, before you solve all the world's problems with an international consortium, when we did that before, after World War II, and we created the new world order, and that meant we said to the world, the shipping lanes will be open, communications will be open, and we will deter the Soviet Union from taking over Europe and Asia. That was a different United States, wasn't it? It had men like FDR and Harry Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower and JFK at its helm. It had uh, the world by far largest economy. It was energy self-sufficient. It was a, a competent, robust coming off the victory of World War II. But when I look at this generation, I see Barack Obama, I see Joe Biden, I see giving up energy independence, I see woke uh, narratives, I see 120 days of rioting, I see hysteria over laptop. It's not the same United States. And Joe Biden is no Harry Truman. And so I don't, I'm very pessimistic that, and he said that of course to assert U.S. leadership rather than actualize or reify. He always does that, doesn't he? He threatens people with corn pop like Braggadocio, but he never follows through with I'm going to, you know, when, during the campaign, he said, you know, Vladimir Putin's going to fear me. He, he knows who I am. No, he wasn't. He knows who you are. He doesn't fear you. But it's always the tough guy. I'm going to take Donald Trump behind the gym and beat him up. But that's always when you hear people talk like that, it's because when you ask them a question, should we send more javelins in February of 2021 right away or maybe harpoon missiles? that that could protect the Ukrainian coast, Maripol or Odessa, from amphibious attack? No, I'm a little worried about that. That's Joe Biden. Talk tough because he's not willing to take the heat to make tough decisions where there's no, it's a win-win-lose, it's not win-win, it's lose-lose decision. Well, here's the question, okay? So now this actually points towards some of what I was talking, gonna talk about, which is the US-led world order post-World War II, um, it, it appears to be coming apart. Yes. Um, it's in, you know, in jeopardy and you know, there's benefits to it, but 
bring considerable benefits to it, actually, you could argue. Um, and But there seems to be all sorts of people, like this is something that unites people on the left and the right. There's all sorts of people cheering for it to actually fall apart, right? Yeah, it is falling apart, but why is it falling apart? It's falling apart because this global veneer of popular culture, the internet, TikTok, Facebook, common music, everybody watches the Super Bowl, halftime all over the world, etc., etc. It's created this veneer that we're all on the same page and we don't need it. There's no need for it. We're all in the world community, globalism. It's not true, it's just a veneer. The people, nationalism is still there, ethnic, racial, religious divides are still there, and you need some type of coercive power, not to get into their internal affairs, but to tell the Somali pirates, you're not just the other. You send a rocket and take out a tanker, we're gonna blow your base up. And that's what the United States Navy did. But we don't, we don't think that you need that anymore. And on the one hand, being naive. On the other hand, Trump, Obama, Biden, for various reasons, said we're not going to do that anymore because it costs us too much money. And the Europeans have a, a billion people. They have a larger aggregate GDP, all of them together, than we do. They don't contribute and we can't get Australia and Japan and Taiwan and South Korea on the same page to check Chinese aggression. And China in that void is, is uh, it's the new power. It's going to control all the major choke points of the world. It's going to one day run the Egyptian Suez. It's going to run the, the Panama Canal like it does. But I mean run it and they're only in their interest. It's going to run uh, a lot of the South China Sea from the Spratly Islands, and it's been so advanced and confident in that agenda that to stop it now would require a major war. So the United States looks around and says, not us. And that's what the problem is. And the irony is that actually in all of the historical barometers of strength, the United States is superior. So we only have 330 million people. China has 1.4. So they have, what, five times, almost five times our population, and their GDP is smaller. In crude terms, that means one Chinese citizen is not producing as much goods. Uh, one American citizen is producing five times the goods and services of China, of China in that way of thinking. You look at the Japanese or British uh, education surveys of the top 100, top 50, top 20 uh, major universities, and they're not based on the English department or the you know, gender studies or computer engineering, mathematics, physics. It's all American still. It's about 17 out of 20. Caltech is usually number one. MIT. Harvard, Stanford. California has more top-ranked universities in the top 25 than any other nation in the world except the U.S. You look at fuel, natural gas, I mean that's what a society is. It's education, it's fuel to make people move. We have more gas and we were the largest producer of gas and oil in the world until two years ago. Food, we're the most efficient. We don't, China may produce a little bit more, but we're the efficient, most efficient food producer in the world. And so education, food, 
fuel, defense for all of the wokeness, the inefficiency, the corporate revolving door of retired generals, the corruption in the Pentagon, we still have the largest military in the world. So, and then we have, the, we're the oldest uh, democracy, constitutional republic, whatever you choose to call it, in existence right now. So by every imaginative barometer of national strength, we should be stronger than we've ever been, but we're not. And that's because we have let this uh, woke, postmodern, uh, anti-American uh, fringe that was always necessary, I guess, to remind us not to be too cocky. It was always in a minority role, not by race or gender, but by ideology and saying, don't get too cocky here. And they were, there was some value in that. And now that is the dominant narrative and it's defeatism. Uh, cannibalism, suicidal impulse, nihilism, and that can destroy an empire or can destroy a great nation. We were never an empire, but it's destroying us because we, we have to have leaders who say, you know what, we don't have to be perfect to be good, and we just need to be better than all the alternatives. But we're not going to fall down and ask for forgiveness uh, because we're not utopia, heaven on earth. And that's what the left has done to us. And it, it's, uh, it has a history of doing that to countries, whether Cuba or China or Russia or Venezuela. It, it can be insidious. So let's just jump back to the bigger picture. And I'm going to get you to put, as we finish up here, your you know, historian hat on again. And you know, this has been compared to you know, what prompted World War One? what prompted World War II. We've talked a little bit about that in this interview already. But, you know, what, what analogous reality, uh, past history, do you see? Well, people cite World War I and World War II for a couple of reasons, and that is, in World War I, it was Serbia, an, an area that is in between uh, realms of influence. So there was the Russian Empire, and it was orthodox and then there was the Austria-Hungarian Empire that was Euro Central European and Catholic-Protestant and Serbia was right in between and wanted to be free from Austria-Hungary and, and that was a flashpoint to reflect elemental differences between the two cultures and that was a place that started. So World War II started in Poland and uh, you could argue that the countries between Europe and Russia, that is hung Hungary and Poland and Romania and Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia were at various times, and Finland right down that spine, were at various times uh, contested either in a cold fashion or right before 1939 or right after. Think of the Munich Agreement and the Sudan Sudeten German. And so that is uh, disturbing, parallel, that the geography is once again between Europe and Russia. A second thing is that there are irredentist problems that in these areas of, of contention, there were outside parties that said this country belongs to us. So Germany said to take the World War II example, the Versailles Treaty stripped us of our natural right to protect German speakers in East Prussia, which you created Poland, uh, 
and you know they they didn't believe in anything called Gdansk that that wasn't it was Danzig and they didn't believe that the Sudeten Germans were part of the Czech Republic they didn't believe Austria was really a separate country they didn't believe that the Alsace Lorraine where there were German speakers so it was that effort to bring them back and that's very scary because that's what Russia is doing again and these are very primitive Neanderthal and that we all have in, in, in us. And so when you look at this, um, and the third thing is, and I think this is what uh, a lot of historians have been worried about, they all have another commonality. Nobody thought when uh, Archduke Ferdinand was murdered that that would lead to 17 million dead. Just was, if you told somebody that, in August 1914 that you're going to start this ball rolling, nobody would believe you. And when Germany uh, decided to have the plebiscite in the Saarland or the Anschluss or go into the Sudetenland, nobody felt that that was going to start a World War II. In fact, the, way, the, world, the word World War II did not exist really in the popular vocabulary. It was, some scholars had thought about it uh, until they invaded, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in June of 41. And then all of a sudden, 41 saw Russia go to war and then Pearl Harbor, and then they declared war in the United States, they being Mussolini and Hitler, and that was a world war. Before that, it was the Polish war. It was over with. Everybody thought they were, there was a big movement in Germany to decommission troops. And then it was the Dan Danish war, then it was the Belgian war, and then it was the French war, and then it was the Blitz, and then it was the Yugoslavian war. But they were all these 11, uh, theater in the Norway war were never consider, considered a world war. And we know that because it, people use the term great war. And then suddenly in 1941, they start talking about World War I. And so that is similar, that we say today, nuclear war, or this can't expand, or we could never, it's the same blinkered idea. So the geography is similar, the aims of Putin are similar to other irredentist uh, megalomaniacs and the denial that this powder cake can explode into a larger war are the same. And w the only thing that I can see is different. In World War I and World War II, the United States was not an active player. World War I, if the United States had said to the Kaiser in 1914, we have a natural affinity with Britain and the, the land of France is sacrosanct. Because when we did go to war, we finally were getting 10,000 men a week and we sent two million people over there in one year and crushed the German army. We don't get credit for it in World War I, but that was really the story. In World War II, had we said to Hitler, had we been armed as we were by 43, if we had been armed as we were in 43 and 38, Hitler would have never done that. Goering said to us, you make good planes, but you don't make enough of them, sorry. If we had the large, by 44, we had a fleet that was larger than all the fleets in the world put together. If we had had that, and he would have never done it. But now we do, we have, we're, well, we did until recently, but we do, we are engaged and we have enormous power and we can affect change before it gets started. 
I think there is such a thing as a bipartisan consensus to be very careful how we use it, but to use it nevertheless, to, this war does not expand. The difference as I see it is people on the right who are very pro-Ukrainian are kind of divided. And some of them say, let's help Ukraine with weapons, but given the complex history of that country and our own checkered relation with Putin, let's not just go gung-ho and give them unqualified support and get into a nuclear war. And then there's the other people who are Jacksonians and they say, no, you let him come in there, you establish a precedent that he'll be doing it everywhere. But whereas the left is more united and, and united in a very bizarre way, it's anybody who says that you don't give unqualified support is uh, a asset is a Russian puppet and we're going to do everything that we can and it's unlimited and why don't we have, I'm quoting the squad or Eric Swalwell, why don't we have a no-fly zone? We can do it. It's very funny. And two quick things, you know, what, there's also on the right the people that are thinking, you know, let the Ukrainians deal with their own situation. Yeah. I mean, right, to be fair, there's actually a significant portion of it. There's some on the right that'll say, you know what, we didn't ask Ukraine to get in our business. They've gotten our business before, but we didn't ask them to, and we don't want to get in their business. We got on, it's time we just stay clear. And that's a tragedy, but it's their tragedy, not ours. That's some of them are saying that. There's other people who are saying, okay, you went into Afghanistan to do what? Uh, maybe it was to get rid of bin Laden, but very soon you decided to turn that into nation building for the Afghan people. You went in to get rid of Saddam Hussein because you said he had violated UN Accords or he was having, but very soon it was for the Iraqi people. Well, the Ukrainian people have a quasi-democracy and they will fight for us against our enemies. That wasn't true of the Afghans or the Iraqis. And then the other side says, well, Exactly. We did the wrong thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Let's not risk it a third time. So it's, I've never seen a more complex, messy political spectrum. And, and maybe it's good that you can't just say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. But although I think the, the left now sees this for other reasons that you and I discussed as a hysterical crisis, a, crisis, a hysteria in which they can ramp up their outrage and virtue signal their their moral superiority over everybody. You know, I agree. It's it's an incredibly complex situation right now, both in terms of what people are thinking about it, um, and but it does hark back to the, what you were saying just moments ago, which is, you know, the U.S. is somehow maybe not entirely, but somehow stop believing in itself to some extent. That, that's, my, that's my observation looking in from outside, but also, you know, as a fierce American exceptionalist. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe rediscovering that, that belief or the, some courage or something like this would be the, at what the doctor ordered. Is that even possible at this Yeah, stage? it is possible. Yeah. I mean, there's an alternative point of view that says for all the complexity and self-interest and disunity, there's a glimmer of hope that there is such a thing still as the West. So when this thing happened, Germany, France, 
Britain were on the same page as us, and then certain things happened that we in our right mind thought were never going to happen. President Macron says, I would like to remind President Putin that NATO is a nuclear power. I couldn't believe that he said that when, he, nuke, when Putin was threatening everybody. And then the German Chancellor Schultz said, we will meet and exceed our 2%. We will rearm, we won't. And I thought, wow, that, that's very strange. And suddenly people said, this is a wake-up call in Taiwan. So if, now how would that be orthodox? How could that become orthodox, that unorthodox burst of unity or backbone? I think you could envision in the next two or three weeks the Ukrainians flooded as they are with weapons and hurt as Russia is, as Russia loses the propaganda war, because people really all over the world will begin to get, resent the absolute slaughter a little bit more than they are, and they start waging counter-offensives, and we control Putin so he doesn't go nuclear or deter him, and by military force, they casually start to decrease and they route the Russians. I don't, don't think that's going to happen, but I wish it were to happen. If it can, if either that or whichever cuts down the number of dead the most quickly, either a negotiated settlement or a route of Putin, and he can claim what he wants. And then what would happen if NATO would all say at the next summit, we're going to make our 2%, and Germany would say, we're going to contribute, a, a, we have the biggest, a massive army. And the United States says we're going to uh, pump oil. We're going to pump natural gas. We, we, we believe in this green agenda, but you know what? If you, if you give up your advantages in fossil fuels, you get people killed. And so just like the Germans are, if the German Green Party can be overruled in Germany, then the squad and the radical environmentalists can too. And out of that, all of us have learned that we need to be energy independent, we be, need to be united, we need to be physically and materially and militarily strong, our armed forces, because we have a China on the horizon. And we should tell China right now, they can't split us, we're going to have a uniform policy of sanctions against them if they try it in Taiwan, we're going to be tough on their trade, our military is going to be ten times stronger than theirs. We actually have a larger population in Europe, the United States, North America, and all of Europe together than China does, or at least equivalent. So the West is, is, has that potential. That would be something that would be good. Otherwise, it's, we're going to be relegated to sort of a Athens during the Roman Empire, a nice place to go, hang out, talk about the glories of the past. Plutarch writes lives of the famous Greeks, <laughs> compares them to Romans. And Athens is a tourist center. Sparta, you go down, look at these kind of guys dressed up in hop-like gear and say, wow, there used to be an army here. Or you go and look at the ruins of Thebes and say, wow, this is where the Antigone was, uh, that mist started. But it was, it was not, it was just a backwater of the Roman Empire. And that will be what we'll become if China's visions are reified. Well, Victor Davis Hanson, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you for having me. And to everyone out there watching, Thank you for joining me and Victor on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Jekielek. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American Thought Leaders, 
So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American Thought Leaders. Mm -hmm.